0: Uh, I enjoyed especially seeing the big group, the choir up here this morning. Thank you to all of you extras who are up here. It was special. It gives Christmas kind of a festive feel when we have a, a larger group up here. You know, when we think of Christmas, it brings to mind many different things. Perhaps there are different things for each of us when we think of this Christmas season. Of course, the good Christian answer to the question of what do you think of when you think of Christian is It's the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, right? That's an easy one, isn't it? And of course, I think that's probably in most of our minds here this morning. After all, we are here in church. But when you really think of Christmas, there are bound to be many more things that come to mind. For me, the real, quote-unquote, reason for the season meaning has always been a very important part of my thinking about Christmas. I remember as a young boy, going to midnight mass with my family on Christmas Eve and hearing my dad sing Mary's Boy Child, one of my favorite Christmas songs, and then walking out of that event into a quiet night with the snow falling and the crunch of snow beneath my feet. Now see, I grew up in western New York, so it was very difficult for me growing up in western New York and then moving to this part of the country, and we'd never have snow at Christmas. And it just doesn't feel like Christmas without snow. And I see a lot of you Yankees out there shaking your head, yeah, that's true. So I have a lot of memories of Christmas, and most of them include snow, at least from my younger years, although I've lived here actually a lot longer now than I lived in the Northeast growing up. And then I remember one particular Christmas, getting home after midnight mass, and turning on the radio and hearing the voice of an astronaut who was orbiting the moon. And he read from scripture as he looked back at the big blue marble of earth. So yes, the real reason for the season has been a significant part of my Christmas experiences through the years. But to be honest, there are many other things that can tend to crowd that out. Mixed together with the same spiritual thoughts of going to midnight mass, of the manger scene with the baby Jesus, are also these wonderful memories of a still and snowy night, christmas lights, christmas music and many other things that go with the season. So this christmas I've been pondering why is christmas enjoyable or meaningful to us? What's special about this particular season of the year for us? Well, I can't answer for you although I guess as we talk this morning some of you're going to relate to some of the things that I have to say but For me, it's things like Christmas songs and carols, It's things like Christmas decorations and lights, it's family, it's traditions, and it's memories of Christmas past. I have to admit that while I really enjoyed the carols we sang here this morning, and I always do, many of the Christian songs that have a very clear Christian theme, I really also like a lot of the secular Christmas tunes, a lot of those Uh, make up many of my memories of growing up. So many of my Christmas memories are wrapped up in these sounds. And, you know, music is such a powerful memory maker, and it's so closely entwined with our emotions that it's hard for me to escape. One of my favorite Christmas songs is The Christmas Song. Perhaps it's better known by the line, Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, the opening line of that song. When I told Jim Grinnell that this was one of my favorite Christmas songs, he told me about the big chess tournament that they had at the downtown Doubletree last year. And after the first day's competition, a lot of the winners were sitting around in the foyer, and they were talking about their matches, and they were bragging about how good they were. And of course, when you get them liquored up a little bit, they were all kind of drinking. They got louder and more and more boisterous. And finally, the clerk at the front desk couldn't take any more, and he kicked them all out of the lobby, said, leave. And the next morning, the manager came in, and he called the clerk into his office, and he said there had been several complaints about the way he'd treated all of these chess players. They'd been rude. He'd been rude to them. That was the report he'd gotten. He said, why didn't you, instead of kicking them out, you could have just asked them to calm down and be just a little bit less noisy. And the clerk said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but if there's one thing I can't stand, it's chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. LAUGHTER Now, for the. When I was in college, a friend and I rewrote the lyrics to the Christmas song, and we included many of the names of the guys who were on my dormitory wing. We called it the Shekinah Christmas song. The name of the dorm wing that I was on at ORU was Shekinah. And in a moment of inspiration, now, when you hear this, some of you may think it's more like a moment of perspiration. But in a moment of inspiration, I've again rewritten the lyrics to the Christmas song. And I call this the TCF Christmas song. Are you ready? Trust me, I don't think you are. <laughs> Jim's buns roasting on an open fire. Bud Green nipping at his toes. yule Yuletide carols being sung by Jim Garrett. And Gordon dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows Al Baker and James Manchester love their iPhones and PCs. Dave and Carl, with their eyes all aglow, will find it hard to sleep tonight. They know that Joel is on his way. He's bringing Linda, Jane, and Doris on his sleigh. And Jody and Mike bros will surely spy To see if Hanya really knows how to fly. And so I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from Hannah to Steve Staub. Though Bruce has said many times, many ways, Jason Feathers can't sing. They know that Joel is on his way. He's bringing Brian, Tom, and Sarah on his sleigh. And Daniel and Hal Reed will surely spy to see if Hallett really knows how to fly. And so I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from Shirley to Chris Staub. Though Ed has said many times, many ways, Spencer Travers can't sing. Now, you have to know that I picked on Jason Feathers and Spencer Travers primarily because they have musical names. You know, there's only certain, certain uh, sounds that fit with certain songs, right? I don't know if they can sing or not, actually. Some names just fit music better than others. I used to tease my girls. You know, the Carol of the Bells? You know that? That's, that's a great Christmas tune. I told the girls, well, you know, girls, your dad has a very musical name. Bill Sullivan, Bill Sullivan, Bill Sullivan... Now, all of you, when you hear that, you're going to be thinking of that the rest of the Christmas season. (laughs) Every time you hear the Carol of the Bells, you're going to think it's the Carol of the Bills. (laughs) My dad had a Frank Sinatra Christmas album with a version of the Christmas song, as well as the more famous version uh, by Nat King Cole. And when Barb and I were first married on our very first Christmas as husband and wife, we lived in Memphis, and because I was still working on, uh, because I was still working in radio then, I had to work on Christmas Day. Matter of fact, the first couple of Christmases that we were married, I worked on Christmas Day because radio stations don't shut down. And we couldn't afford to travel to visit my parents or hers for Christmas anyway. But I couldn't have gotten the time off even if we could have afforded it. So we had to make new Christmas memories. Barb probably remembers uh, that first Christmas where we lived in this townhouse in Memphis. It was very poorly insulated. So one of her Christmas memories is she actually got frostbite. Unbelievable. But right before Christmas, when we were both kind of sad because we couldn't be with either one of our families, I remember browsing through a bargain bin in a store there in the little town outside of Memphis where we lived and finding a copy of the same Frank Sinatra Christmas album that I just grew up listening to during the Christmas season. And I have to admit that it provided me just enough of a taste of my childhood Christmas memories that it helped me get through that very first Christmas without my extended family, my parents, my brothers and sisters. This memory also serves as an example of a problem that I've had with some Christmases through the years, on and off, as we've celebrated Christmas. Christmas music, lights and decorations, family, tradition, memories, these are the kinds of things that most often come to mind when I think of the Christmas season. They're so ingrained in me, and they're so clearly associated with the season, that they create expectations in me as we approach Christmas every year. And when some or all of these things are missing, or they somehow fall short, my expectations are not met, and I can get somewhat melancholy during this time of year. Christmas can be somewhat of a letdown for me. And you know what? I know that I'm not alone. Many people experience seasonal depression this time of year. Jim Grinnell told me just this week about his uh, counseling business. You know, Jim does a lot of counseling outside of TCF. And he says this is a tough time of year for him because people come to him with the most difficult problems during the Christmas season. So this is true. People want things or circumstances they don't get or something about the season for whatever reason does not live up to their expectations. Some people call this the holiday blues. I found some information on this phenomenon. It said sadness is a truly individual feeling. What makes one person feel sad may not affect another person. And typical sources of holiday sadness include things like stress and fatigue, unrealistic expectations over commercialization financial stress and the inability to be with one's family or friends one study showed that as many as one-third of adults experience at least the holiday blues if not outright depression during the Christmas season now you know there's nothing wrong with these good things that we enjoy about the Christmas season there's certainly nothing wrong with being with family and friends at Christmas. There's nothing wrong with Christmas songs, Christmas carols, nothing wrong with decorations, nothing wrong with Christmas memories. But I've been challenged and convicted, especially this year, as I've pondered why some Christmases seem so much better than others to me. Is it more than just the pressure of the busy schedule that we all have? Christmas seems to be busier. Doesn't it? Every year there's more and more to do. Is it more than the pressure to get gifts to give or cards to send? Well, for me at least, and I'm guessing that this is true for at least some of you here this morning as well, it goes deeper than these common reasons that some of us are inclined to say, bah, humbug, when it comes to the Christmas season. When Christmas season makes me melancholy, it's usually because something about the season doesn't meet my hopes or expectations or memories. But I have to be honest, and I have to say that I realize that my expectations are not only wrong expectations, they're not only unreasonable or unrealistic in some ways, they're also misguided, and more importantly, they're especially misfocused. That's because my expectations at Christmas are too often focused on the gifts. Now, I'm not talking about a what-I'm-going-to-get-for-Christmas kind of expectation. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. Although, speaking of that, there is a list of things I want for Christmas in the foyer for those of you who are still shopping for me. Seriously, though, we've all had to temper our children's expectations, right? Their understanding, or maybe even our own, of Christmas as simply a time to get gifts. We know it's not about the presents we receive. I'm really way long past that view of Christmas, and it really never contributes to how I feel about any particular given Christmas season. In fact, in our house, we don't really do much gift-giving at, at Christmas time. For that very reason, Barb and I made a genuine effort since early in our marriage to lower the expectations about who gives what to whom, because we really do not want Christmas to be about getting gifts. When I say that my expectations at Christmas are often on the gifts, I'm talking about the gifts of family and friends. I'm talking about the gifts of wonderful Christmas memories and Christmas traditions, the gifts of enjoyable Christmas songs that stir my emotions. And the thing is, these are all good gifts. These things are good things. I think there are blessings from God. And if they are blessings from God, that means ultimately these things are from him. But here's the problem. These gifts are byproducts. They're trappings. They're not what Christmas means, and they're not meant to be the focus of my holiday thinking or my satisfaction with any given Christmas. They're not supposed to be what I embrace about Christmas. That doesn't mean I can't or shouldn't enjoy these things. They're just not meant to be the focus. In some ways and sometimes, I have to be honest, I find myself inadvertently embracing these gifts and not the giver of these gifts. I find myself seeking meaning and satisfaction for the season in these gifts rather than the meaning and satisfaction that's found only in the giver. And inevitably, when I do that, I am disappointed. I'm let down. Christmas is not all I've cracked it up to be when I take that attitude. And I realize this is my own fault. And at those times, it's clear that I've forgotten what Paul has written to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now in verse 7 of this passage, when Paul wrote of these things, he was referring to his success, to his credentials, the good things he was done. And it was really in the context of how we're saved. He used the language of business to describe this, profit and loss. But then in verse 8, he made these things a little more inclusive of other ideas. He said everything else, or some versions say all things, are worthless by comparison to knowing Christ. Let me read another version of this passage to uh, flesh it out a little bit further. This is from the New Living Translation. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Paul here is making a comparative statement. He's not saying that there's no good in these things. He's saying that compared to Christ, there's no worth in these things. After Paul considered everything he had accomplished in his life, he decided to write it all off as worthless when compared with the greatness of knowing Christ. We should value our relationship with Christ as more important than anything else. To know Christ should be our ultimate goal. Paul's not saying we shouldn't enjoy good things. He's saying that all these good gifts, as good as they may seem, or maybe they really are good, They're only a shadow of the giver himself. What I need to do, maybe what some of you need to do, is to renounce my reliance on the gifts for my joy and for my satisfaction and embrace my total reliance on the giver. After all, if we consider what is the real meaning of Christmas, we can come up with several things, but none of those things are these trappings, these byproducts of the season even when they're good things. But here's what I think of when I think of what Christmas really means. These are just some of the things that can help me remember the giver instead of just his wonderful gifts. First of all, there's the reality of the incarnation. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of Of grace and truth. What an awesome thing that is to think about. The Maker of the universe takes on human flesh and lives among us. And what's more, He now lives in His followers by the Holy Spirit. He truly is God with us, Emmanuel. As it says in uh, Isaiah 7 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. And it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Then, of course, we have the promise. God promised redemption, and he delivered. Acts 13:23 From this man's descendants God has brought to Israel the savior Jesus as he promised. And later in Acts chapter 13, we tell you the good news what God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. In Galatians 3:29 If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together, again, we see that word, in the promise of Christ. And then there's what Gordon talked about when he led our prayer this morning. There's the indescribable gift. It's an amazing thing. Not the extra gifts that come from the giver, but the giver himself and gift of himself To us, salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. We cannot separate the giver from this indescribable gift, which is described in 2 Corinthians 9.15, where God says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. There is no gift of redemption. There is no salvation without the giver of the gift coming to us. He couldn't send us salvation by FedEx or UPS. The gift was himself, his very life, his very blood, in the flesh. In the flesh, not on Facebook, not via email or cell phone. You know what? We can see that God's love was demonstrated very clearly by the fact that he gave. He is the embodiment of the ultimate gift as well as The ultimate giver himself there's the continual reality that we see in scripture where we see that God gave of course our well-known passage in John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he what that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life we see it in Galatians 1 4 which speaks of the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We see it in Galatians 2:20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We see it in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6, speaking of Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time and we see it in Titus 2:14 speaking again of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify us purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good we see in all these passages that god gave the ultimate gift and that gift is himself it's the living king of kings and the lord of lords Now, the reference in this passage to the inexpressible or indescribable gift which God has granted to them in bestowing his Son to die for them, and this is one of the most striking instances which occur in the New Testament, showing that the mind of Paul was full of this subject, and that wherever he began, he was sure to end with a reference to the Redeemer. The invaluable gift of a Savior was so familiar to his mind And he was so accustomed to dwell on that in his private thoughts that the mind naturally and easily glanced on that whenever anything occurred that by the remotest illusion would suggest it. The idea is, your benefactions are indeed valuable, and for them, for the disposition which you have manifested, and for all the good which you will be enabled thus to accomplish, we are bound to give thanks to God. All this will excite the gratitude of those who shall be benefited. But how small is all this compared with the great gift which God has imparted in bestowing a Savior? That is unspeakable. No words can express it. No language convey an adequate description of the value of the gift and of the mercies which result from it. Let me paraphrase for a moment a part of this commentary so we won't miss the meaning here. The idea, and we're talking about this passage, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The idea here is that the good things God gives us are indeed valuable and for them we are indeed thankful. Because of these gifts, our gratitude will overflow into good deeds and even into providing gifts to others. But none of this compares to the great, even indescribable gift that God has given us in himself, God with us, Emmanuel, our great God and Savior. Now, the word for indescribable here is used only in this passage in the New Testament, and it means unable to recount or tell fully. It's like no other gift we could ever receive. It's the gift of... Of eternal life in the very person of Jesus. What we're talking about this morning is more than just a lesson about how to think about Christmas or what gives real meaning to this season. It's truly a life lesson for Christians. We sometimes find satisfaction in God's gifts, Christmas time or any other time of the year. But the gifts are meant to remind us of, to point us to, the giver. We miss out when we settle for the gifts instead of the giver. We miss out on true joy. We miss out on true satisfaction. In our minds, let's apply this fairly familiar C.S. Lewis quote to our Christmas desires this year. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So just because we're sometimes easily pleased in some good things about Christmas doesn't mean we've found infinite joy. So let me apply this personally this morning. I've been too easily pleased by the lights, by the carols and songs, by the decorations, by the Christmas music I enjoy, by the memories, even by the time with family and the wonderful traditions that we have. These are good things. They're gifts to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with them. But these gifts, are just a small taste of the giver. The gifts, again, are just a shadow of the giver. So when I rely on, when I chase after the shadow, I'm always disappointed. Our position should be the same as the psalmist who said, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing." John Piper wrote, Christ does offer total satisfaction, much of it right now in hope and forgiveness and growing power to love, but all of it in the age to come when we will be made perfect in a perfect world. Then there will be no sense in which we will be disappointed in ourselves or in our circumstances at all. Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In closing, I'd like to read a poem by singer and songwriter Michael Card. As far as I know, he never set this particular poem to music, but it's an entry in his book, which is called Emmanuel. The poem is called The Gift. And it says, Forgive me, O Lord, for being so dim. I've embraced all your gifts. Put my arms around them. I was holding so tight it was all I could do. I forgot that my arms belong just around you. Now, Jesus has taught to let everything go, all the things that you own, all the people you know. If you stop asking questions and simply obey, you'll possess them in a much more beautiful way. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the indescribable gift. And we pray, Father, that this Christmas season would be a new beginning for those of us who struggle with embracing the gifts and not the giver. Lord, if there are any here this morning who are in that place or have been in that place, I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd give us a new grace to look to the giver and not to the gifts. Father, we do thank you for the gifts. We are grateful that you are a gift-giving God and that you give us so many things that remind us and repoint us to the giver. But, Father, we pray that we would embrace only you this Christmas season, and, Father, that we would embrace only the giver throughout our lives, not just during the Christmas season, Father, but when we enjoy other gifts that you bestow on us, that you give to us to enjoy. May we never hold on so tightly to those things. Father, may we give you thanks for those things and recognize that they are but a shadow of the giver himself. We thank you for these great truths, Father. May they resonate in our hearts and in our spirits as we celebrate the birth of the ultimate gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.